Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs. And on this Veterans Day week, after the end of ops in Afghanistan, the toll of 20 years of the global war on terrorism, I want to introduce you to the perfect author who ties together the modern combat vet experience with stories from the men of the World War II generation. The book is called The Rifle. It's both historically fascinating and yet completely relevant for every veteran of every generation, but most especially a call out to the ones that are just getting out today. He's an author, a Marine Corps combat veteran, and a police officer, Andrew Biggio. Andrew, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. Glad to be on. I'm going to paraphrase real quick because I want to jump into some cliff notes from your life. But essentially, the rifle's an inspirational story, a hero's journey of a 28-year-old Marine, you, that had returned home from combat in Afghanistan full of questions about war. Um, you'd served there. You'd served Iraq. You'd have all the typical combat vet questions. And it was about the time that you'd received the 1945 M1 Garand rifle, the most common rifle used in World War II, uh, which was received as a gift to honor your great uncle. U.S. Army soldier who died on the hills of the Italian countryside during World War II. Uh, that's when you showed the gun to the neighbor, a World War II veteran himself, and it unlocked memories that you shared with your, ma- with your neighbor, some of which had gone unspoken in that man's life for 50 years. And it was that rifle, that conversation, that relationship that spurred you to then go, wait a minute, I'm going to go get combat veterans of, world, of the World War II mm-hmm. era to sign the rifle and to sit with you and document their story. And we're going to go through some cliff notes here of some incredible people that you've met. Let's start before we get to that young Andrew Biggio coming back from combat. Yeah. You know, my friends always give me credit. They're like, Andy, you're one guy who has set his eyes on what he wanted to do when he was like seven or eight years old and stayed true to that. And they always say that all my friends all break my chops and say that they say, You've been saying you want to be a Marine and be a cop your whole life, and you did both. 
You're the only person I know since since you were a young kid, and that's what I wanted to do. I just that's what I wanted to do, and I did both. And and um, you know, September 11th, I think I was in ninth, eighth grade, and that really amplified really wanting to get in the service and serve. You know, I always wanted to serve. I didn't care where, when, how, what war, what war or not. Um, I just got both wars sitting for me, waiting for me when I got out of high school, and yeah, I joined yeah. the Marine, the Marines. And um, I, I went to Iraq in 2008. That was really kind of the the end of the serious combat. Um, we were there for, you know, President Bush's surge, which was really just a big occupation. I mean, don't get me wrong, guys are still dying in that country. A lot of soldiers and Marines gave their life in 2008. But um, I, I didn't experience any of that craziness um, where I was stationed in the Al-Ambar province. There was, there was none of that. I just did my regular nine-month deployment over there. Came home, um, and then eventually went to Afghanistan in 2011, and that was kind of where I saw more more stuff of people getting shot and killed and blown up. And so yeah, the book opens up actually with the book opens up actually where you're talking about that uh, in Afghanistan and the truck full of Afghan casualties. Yeah, yeah, that was the worst IED we had seen, and it took the lives of several uh, Afghan police officers. So I came home, and you know. I was really, I felt guilty that I had lived through Iraq and Afghanistan, but that one Andrew Biggio, who I'm named after, didn't. And he was killed when he was 19. He was drafted in the army and was fighting in Italy, the Italian front, and got killed in action. I just, it just really hurt me that I get to enjoy my life, have a family, move on. But this kid was 19 and he bled out somewhere on some Italian hill. And I wanted to learn more about him. I wanted to know why, you know, and my grandmother kept his letters that he wrote home before he was killed. And the one letter he wrote was about that M1 Grand Rifle. And I just immediately had to go out and buy one. I want to feel what he felt. I wanted to hold what he held. And everyone just kind of, I bought it. And everyone viewed it as a gun, nice gun. Yeah, you know, my, my family didn't understand. They weren't veterans. So I just that's when I decided to take it to my neighbor to get a different perspective. And that's when we, we sat there. And I put that rifle into his hands. He put it in, and he's 91 years old. He's now in a, He's in a wheelchair. He's, his, his, his legs were thinner than my forearms. I mean, that's because for years of not getting around it in his mid-90s. And I said, hey, Joe, do you remember this? And he produced a level of energy I had never seen before. I mean, he put the rifle into his shoulder. He's waving it around. He's smiling ear to ear. And he talked about the Battle of Okinawa for, well, three, three to four hours. Oh, wow. And and he, he was so exhausted, he couldn't even keep his head up after he, he, he was talking to me. I mean, he used whatever energy he had left in his last days of his life to tell me about the Battle of Okinawa. So I asked him to sign the rifle, sign his name on, on the rifle, and because I, I never want to forget this moment. And he added his name to the rifle, and uh, I looked down at his rifle when I was leaving this house, and I just said, and I just feel like I got a challenge from God, right? It said, you are in a race against time get as many signatures as possible, hear their stories, you know, and I, and I accepted that challenge. And seven, six years, six years later, I have a rifle with 215 names on it and a best-selling book about 19 of those names, 19 of those men. Mm. Now, as you're gathering these signatures or as you're also this younger version of a veteran, I'd also heard you talk about in other interviews that you were sorting out your own emotions. You were, you know, you're going back to school. You're 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 now hanging out with like college kids. You've gone through all that stuff. People step on your shoes in a nightclub, and you get all mad. You're that that marine, and you kind of wants to fight. 
And these men have lived through those experiences and their stories are like eternal advice for us, this newer generation of veterans experiencing the anger, the frustration and the dynamics of coming back to a nation that may or may not understand what we've done. Share with me the first person that gave you some advice there that sort of changed who you were. You just asked a good question that like nobody asks me actually. So not many podcast hosts, radio hosts actually bring up that kind of question. So, and it's funny because when I was reading my uncle's letters, he wrote home before he was killed. I was reading these letters as this little angry infantryman, like no different than the angry grunts of today, pissed off about child, pissed off about having to dig a foxhole, pissed off about the rain, pissed off that the non-infantry guys are in the back hanging out, having a great time in Rome. So I started to see how, how angry he was and, and I related to directly how I was, you know, I came home and expected everyone to know that I was a veteran and I had been under some sort of stress, you know, and I remember like my first day of college, a kid walks into classroom, he's got his headphones in and he's sitting in, in class with his headphones in. And I like, uh, I wanted to get up and rip the headphones out of his ears. Like who, you know, you're disrespectful. I like, get those headphones out of ears. And I said, dummy, this isn't the Marine Corps. This is the the freedoms they get to enjoy, you know, it, it, just little examples like that. But I remember John Katsaros, who was a B-17 belly gunner, and he and I had interviewed him. And it was the first time I had talked to somebody who was in, involved in the air war, and I miss him very much. He passed away last year from COVID. But he, he invited me to lunch after we did an interview, and we went to a golf course. A, um, it was one of those uh, country clubs. We had sat down and I forget, it was like either they didn't, hadn't, you know, started the special, uh, brunch at a certain hour. And, you know, and John is an old time. He's 97 years old. He's like, Oh, well, they, you know, they used to do it, you know, last year at this time. And then the, the waiter made like a smart ass remark to him being, and he's 97. And I wanted to get up and just pulverize this waiter. Like who the hell? Do you think you are to ever talk to a guy like this? Blah, blah, blah. And then I, and I, obviously I didn't, but I was fuming and I, and I looked at John. I go, I can't believe he talked to you that way. And John looked at me with, as if it was no care for him in the world with the most amount of patience and basically taught me a lesson on how we, we shouldn't react with our emotions and not to fly off the handle. And he was this man just getting ready to go into his soup without even a care in the world about some booger waiter and what he said, what he said to him. And, and that really did, I, I wish I could remember the exact words that were exchanged back and forth to everyone. But moral of the story is, I mean, he just taught me to cool off. Now there was some silence there after that last remark. And I could see on the zoom call that Andrew was distracted looking at his phone and he was clearly getting an important message. Well, sorry, I'm, I'm freezing. I'm, I'm actually watching the status of one of the World War II veterans that took the Normandies in critical care. And, um, oh, shoot. Yeah. Mm. They said he's at 12 hours to live. His son just texted me, actually. And that right there is an example of the powerful connection that Andrew brings us to these World War II veterans documented in the book, The Rifle. All right, welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans, and we'll jump back into my discussion with Marine Corps veteran Andrew Biggio, who wrote the book The Rifle. 
It documents his meetings with World War II combat veterans and conversations they had around a classic M1 Grand Rifle, the kind that they would have been issued in the 1940s. Just holding that rifle had many of those elderly men open up about details they'd never shared before. We'll jump back into the part of the interview now where we're talking about being a veteran in modern days and some of the lessons that we can all learn from veterans of the past. The misnomer that we get about Veterans Day, all veterans are broken, all veterans are damaged, you gotta treat him with kid gloves, go be kind, cause he's a veteran. But we want a dichotomy. We want, treat me different, but treat me the same. Well, I'm equal, but then I'm not because I'm I'm special. I'm not a special <laughs> flower, but I am a special flower. And, yeah. and you even, I've heard in other interviews, give examples where we've had to recognize this with you as law enforcement. And again, I don't want to get, I don't want to put the book off too much, but, but as you transitioned from the military to law, I mean, through college into law enforcement, um, I heard you say in one interview, something like uh, the world war two guys taught you that, uh, yes, you can be a veteran and yes, you can be a good cop, mm-hmm. but there was so much of the country that thinks, Oh my God, he's a veteran. He, he's not going to make a good cop. He's unstable. Uh, you were learning from these guys that that you can do that. You just mm-hmm. have to listen to their example. And that's what I want to like set you up here to tell me who's one of your favorite veterans in the book and why. Johnny Ruchin, um, who, what a guy, what a guy. Did any of us really know about the Battle of Saipan? He didn't. Every, everything we were taught was, you know, jumping into Normandy or raising the flag on Iwo Jima, and that was it. You know, maybe, I maybe no Battle idea. of the Bulge. Maybe the yeah, Bulge. I learned yeah, that, you know, yeah. I knew that was hell to pay. But no, I mean, there's all these other islands like Saipan and different places we never knew. And, and Saipan was a big one. The 2nd Marine Division um, fought their asses off against Japanese Empire, who um, that battle, a lot of people don't know, was. A, the biggest tank battle of the Pacific, that's one. And two, the biggest bonsai charge of World War II had taken place on that island. Um, those are two major events um, that a lot of people don't know about. And Gunny Ruchin, Bernard Ruchin, was from uh, Long Island, New York. Uh, joined the Marines like everyone else, got thrown in a, uh, a coal engine, steam engine train uh, to Paris Island where the the coal burning would blow right into the windows of the guys, like the kids going down to Paris Island. So when they get there, they're covered in like black soot, breathing <laughs> that in the whole thing. That's a VA disability rating. Nobody got something <laughs> for, but, um, and his first action is on Saipan. And I mean, it was up close and personal, up close and personal. I mean, Gunny Ruchin, um, he, he was there, um, apart during the biggest bonsai charge and he has to go hand-to-hand combat he gets hit over the head with a japanese sword luckily it's deflected by his helmet and then he has to thrust a bayonet into a the neck of a japanese soldier and this guy's supposed to come home and live a normal uh life and i'm sure he came home and lived an abnormal life but he did it within normal boundaries and was very successful and is now 96 years old so it can be done uh and he was wounded in action and then his poor butt got sent to Korea after and got wounded in Korea. So wounded in two of the worst, you know, battles um, the United States military has ever seen. He was involved and still he was able to come home, uh, become a New York state trooper, become a a father, uh, raise kids, a wife, and live well into his nineties and still be a symbol of hope for a lot of younger veterans. Yeah. And it would seem as though that, 
they were doing something we were not doing. And I don't know, maybe it's because our, our life with technology in America is so instant. We've got microwave dinners that are ready in a hot second. Uh, if you're sore, take a pill. If you can't sleep, take a pill. What is it? What is the essence of the difference between what that generation was able to do and that we seem to uh, oftentimes lack um, as evidenced by some of the headlines we see in the news every day? Yeah, I think, and I believe them when they say it is, they, they don't call themselves the greatest generation, you know, um, but they believe that they were just ordinary men put in, in an extraordinary time. And do I believe that ever can be duplicated again with new generations? Yes, I do. Um, should I hope for that? Uh, I don't know, because, you know, we are missing the in-between of that. The, that generation spawned amazing men, but it took some severe, nasty, worldly events that we wish not to be repeated to create men like that. Um, that's why that window of that window of men will always be amazing, where they were recovering from the Greatest Depression and then sent right into World War II. Uh, they had to fight and earn everything they had, from the shoes on their feet to um, the medals and ribbons they wore after the war. So it was, it, I mean, t- to me, it was like an extra, you know, ordinary men put in extraordinary time. We still have these kinds of people today with us. I mean, I saw it in Iraq and Afghanistan that these these kids uh, would do exactly what the World War II veterans did if they ever came down to it, 100%. But as of now, still to this day, we cannot even come close to um, <laughs> to basically duplicate those the stories. The stories are they're the stories of that 1941 to 1945 window are unmatched. I mean, sets of brothers, sets of quadruplets fighting in the war, father and son, um, you know, good versus evil. The, the, you know, the actually sometimes really the war that wasn't black and white, the massive bombing campaigns, you know, the, the underground fighting, the, it was just really just, you know, uniformed fighting that we haven't seen since, since really yeah. um, in in today's media and outlet and social media and, and movies and news and television can bring you the war up close in front, very close. Uh, today's world wouldn't allow that kind of stuff to happen, right? Because what those guys did to win World War II would put an average soldier in jail today, period, mm-hmm. plain and simple. Um, and that's one thing we talked about. You know, I talked to Joe Drago. I mean, guys were driving around with Japanese soldiers on the front of their jeeps i mean if we ever even try to do that today forget it he he i remember joe was very up to date he knew how to use the internet he knew how to use facebook uh he's passed away since but he thought marines urinating on the dead taliban okay back in 2010 or 2011 whenever that happened he thought that was a joke compared to what they used to do the their enemy you know a joke but that stuff got looked away from because a um, everybody was on the same side finally, right? So it didn't matter. Democrats, Republicans, the evil, whoever owned the media, it didn't matter. The Germans were the worst. The Japanese are the worst. And we're going to do everything we can to make them worse and not our own guys. So that's where we would kind of go from there. I would get it out of them, but they never, ever started off interviews. Feel bad for me. I'm a victim. They were like, nope, I'm a damn World War II veteran. So. Wow. <clears throat> Well, again, the book says so much. It is ideal, not just for Veterans Day, but as we look at all things veteran in America and this multi-layered existence that is the veteran experience. 
this book does so much to give the advice of not only patience that we need to have with each other, but patriotism, what that really means and what timeless element is woven into the American veteran. If we really look deep into the similarities between our two radically different eras in life, but you know, the lessons that will be learned from war are a kind of timeless thing that hopefully we can draw from. And I know of no better place to draw it from than the book, the rifle. You can find it everywhere. You get books, Andrew Biggio. Um, what's your website? www.theworldwar2rifle.com. Mm. And the story of the veterans and the M1. Man, I cannot thank you enough for writing this one, brother. Uh, we could just, we could swap stories all day. And uh, I hope at some point in time we will, maybe over a beer and a baseball game, I'll do everything but cheer for the Sox. <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> I'm Phil Briggs, and I'll swap more great veteran stories with you again next week when CBS Ion Veterans returns. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.